Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that this is the day that you have made. We are rejoicing and we are glad in it. Lord, we thank you for this nation that you have blessed us to be a part of. We know that it has many problems and many flaws. But Lord, we know that because we continue as, as churches within this country to seek your face, that you have blessed us tremendously. I pray uh, that you would uh, turn the hearts of those in this nation who do not yet, not, who do not yet know you uh, to saving faith in your Son. Lord, we thank you for this church. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it tells us that we will never walk alone, that you will be with us in every season of this life. We thank you for the tremendous truths that we can cling to, that we can anchor our souls to. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As what often happens in uh, households, growing up, my siblings and I had to do chores. That's uh, very oftentimes something that happens in, in households. Every Friday was chore day. Every Friday after school, we had, we, we had to do our chores before we could do anything else. One Friday, while my younger brother and I were kids, as what often happens with kids, we were in rare form. You did not want to be around us that day. I have no recollection whatsoever as to why, but while we were supposed to be doing our chores, we were doing everything to get on each other's nerves. As what naturally happens in that case, we were also getting on our mother's nerve, and the last nerve at that. We kept messing with each other until I knocked over the vacuum, causing a very loud bang, knowing that surely that last action would result in me being sent to my room, I quickly yelled out my brother's name so as to imply that he actually had been the one to knock over the vacuum. My poor mother, running into the room upon hearing a loud bang and doing the best with what she knew about the situation, sent my brother packing upstairs to his room, and I got off scot-free. Now, I don't brag about that. That's just an illustration of what leads into our message this morning. Suffice it to say, God's done some growing in my life since then. A little bit. My point is that my poor mother, frazzled from our afternoon of countless shenanigans, could only base her decision on what information was available to her without knowing all the background of what actually happened. In the same way... A lot of people will base a viewpoint on any given topic and what the Bible says about it on a limited understanding or from hearsay without actually studying, digging into, and even knowing the background of a Bible passage from which they're already drawing their conclusions. That's a very dangerous thing to do. All this goes to show that in order to truly understand any passage dealing with any topic in the book that we're starting this morning in 1 Corinthians, we need to look at the letter as a whole, know what situations are being addressed, and know the background of what's going on as to why Paul wrote these things in the first place. Only then can we accurately understand and accurately apply its verses to make changes in our lives. Because of that, before we read our passage this morning, I want to set up some background for events surrounding the birth of the Corinthian church, Paul's relationship with it, and how it fits into the history of the early church. 
Like other messages in the past, this one will be very information laden. So as our elementary school teachers would tell us, we need to put on our thinking caps today. If you're a note taker, this will be a message to take notes. This will be a good day to take notes. Most, if not all, of this information is going to come up again and again as we see what Paul addresses to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians. So with all that in mind, let's jump into that. We're going to talk about the circumstances here first. The history of the Corinthian church is actually very closely tied to the history of the Thessalonian church, which we just wrapped up with last week. If you remember from throughout our study of First and Second Thessalonians, along with our wrap-up summary last week, Paul was really only in Thessalonica for a short period of time. He was only in Thessalonica for maybe a few months, a maximum. As, as pointed out by one biblical scholar, we can surmise this time frame from a verse in Philippians 4, uh, which says, You yourselves know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. So we're, we're focusing on verse 16 there. For even in Thessalonica, you'd sent a gift more than once for my needs. Giving enough time for the Philippian church to gather together a financial gift for Paul after he left Philippi and entered Thessalonica, which we see here on this map, we know that Paul visited Philippi before he went to Thessalonica, Giving enough time for the Philippian church to gather together that financial gift for Paul after he left Philippi and entered Thessalonica, sending a messenger to deliver that gift to Paul in Thessalonica, Paul using that gift to supplement his own leather and canvas working income, the Philippians presuming that he needed more, getting together another monetary gift, and once again delivering that to Paul, as we read in Philippians 4, we can surmise that Paul was only in Thessalonica for maybe two to three months. That was about the time frame that he was in Thessalonica for. What happened at the end of those two to three months? Well, if we remember from our study in First and Second Thessalonians, the, je the jealous Jewish community got some troublemakers together in the marketplace to start a riot and pin the blame on Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Not finding Paul or his companions, the rioters settled for a Christian named Jason and some other members of the Thessalonian church and hauled them up in front of the Thessalonian city council. The city council then made Jason and his fellow believers post bail and only then did they release them. Acts 17.10 then says, The brethren, the Christian brothers and sisters, immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. So that experience, after the, the, the Christians sent Paul and Silas away from Thessalonica and to Berea, that experience immediately put a Paul's an end to Paul's ministry in Thessalonica. So following their flight from Thessalonica, Paul, Silas, and Timothy went to Berea, as we see on the map here. While in Berea, the Jewish community in Thessalonica caught word that Paul and, and Silas and Timothy were now in Berea. So they came to neighboring Berea and started causing trouble for Paul there in Berea. 
So the newly believing Christians in Berea sent Paul down to Athens, Greece. We follow this uh, kind of magenta line here. They sent him down to Athens now. Silas and Timothy remained in Berea, perhaps to strengthen the new church there before they moved on. While in Athens, Paul spent some time reasoning with and sharing the gospel with the Athenian philosophers on Mars Hill. You may have read about that before. Paul did not have to deal with persecution from the Jewish community in Athens, but left of his own will, making his way to the city of Corinth here in the region of Achaia. When Paul first arrived in Corinth, he met a Jewish Christian named Aquila, who along with his wife Priscilla, providentially worked the same trade that Paul did. So he stayed with them and used his leather and canvas working skills once again. Aquila and Priscilla were originally from Rome, but were expelled from the city along with other Roman Jewish people under Emperor Claudius's edict in 49 AD. That historical event fits perfectly with what we know about Paul's second missionary journey. According to one biblical scholar, Paul started his second missionary journey only a short time after the Jerusalem Council of mid to late 48 AD. Thus, Paul probably started his missionary journey around that same time, quickly passed through Galatia again, as we see here. These are the cities of Galatia, made his way over to uh, Philippi, then, down, then over to Thessalonica. Moved on to Thessalonica for a couple of months, then on to Berea and Athens for a very short period of time, and walked into Corinth in the spring of 49 AD. So keep that in mind. Why is all this important to our study in 1 Corinthians? This is what we find out about what happened during Paul's time in Corinth from Acts 18. Like in Thessalonica, Paul worked his trade and would share the gospel in what spare time he had. However, once Silas and Timothy joined him in Corinth, Acts 18 tells us that Paul took a break from his earthly job to focus completely on sharing the gospel with those living in Corinth. Many Corinthians believed in the gospel and were baptized to show that commitment to their new faith. Luke records for us that Paul settled there in Corinth a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So contrasting this with Paul's time in Thessalonica, Paul only ministered in Thessalonica for maybe two to three months, whereas he spent 18 months, right, in Corinth, establishing and strengthening the church there. So he knew these people quite well in Corinth by the time that he left. That fact will be extremely important to what our exploration of his first letter to them will include. It was also during this 18-month period that Paul most likely wrote his two letters to the church he left back in Thessalonica, both around 50 to 51 AD, the two letters we just finished studying, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. As one biblical scholar pointed out, towards the end of those 18 months that Paul spent in Corinth, the Jewish community in Corinth tried to pull something on Paul. In July of 51, a new governor was put into place over the region of Achaia, in which Corinth was the capital city. So let's go back to our map here. We're here in Corinth. It's the capital city of the region of Achaia here. This new governor's name was Galio. 
Archaeologists have discovered inscriptions that refer to the length of Galileo's governorship, lasting from July 51 to July 52. He only ruled for a year, but Luke records an event that took place probably pretty soon into that governorship in July of 51. As one biblical scholar noted, some from the Corinthian Jewish community tried their luck, so to speak, with a new governor. We read in Acts 18 that some from this community grabbed Paul and brought him before Galileo and charged him with preaching against the Jewish law. Galileo, a new governor within the Roman Empire, not wanting to deal with what he thought to be pettiness within the Jewish community, told the community that it had nothing to do with enforcing Roman laws and told them to beat it. Get out of here. What resulted was an act of violence that Luke tells us Galileo was also not concerned about. There was a man named Sosthenes present before the judgment seat of Galileo that day. Luke tells us that he was the leader of the Jewish synagogue. This is what we read. And they all took hold of Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and they began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Galileo was not concerned about any of these things. According to one biblical scholar, three scenarios are possible for what happened here in this verse. Since Thosthenes was the leader of the synagogue that we plainly have written here, and as such may have been the ringleader of the charge brought against Paul before Galileo, the rest of his Jewish brothers may have been so infuriated at his judicial defeat that they took their anger out on him. So you're the one who ruined everything. Perhaps Thosthenes became a believer in Jesus shortly before this event, and everyone in the synagogue knew it, and again directed their rage at him when Galileo said, this has nothing to do with me, get out of here. Or lastly, it could have been anti-Semitic Gentiles emboldened by Galileo's lack of respect or concern towards the Jewish community, took that opportunity to express their pagan anti-Semitism in a vicious way. Whatever the reason or situation, Paul took it as a sign that he should probably wrap up his time in Corinth. I think any one of us would probably do that at that point. We read in Acts 18.18, Paul stayed in Corinth for some time after that, then said goodbye to the brothers and sisters and went to nearby Sancreia. One biblical scholar pointed out that whenever Luke used the phrase, some time... He always used it to denote a short period of time. So using that time frame of an 18-month stay in Corinth that Acts 18 is clear about, Paul moved down to Sancreia and then set sail from Sancreia to Syria where he only stayed in Ephesus for, a short, uh, for the first time for only a very short period of time. So let's, let's look at this on our map here. So following Corinth... Acts 18 tells us he went to nearby Sancreia. Then from Sancreia in Achaia, he sailed across the sea here to Ephesus. This is Paul's first time he goes to Ephesus. He didn't spend very much time there, but he left a couple of people behind in Ephesus. He left Aquila and Priscilla behind in Ephesus. Set sail for Caesarea and ended his trip back in Antioch where he started. So, Paul's return to Antioch marked the end of his second missionary journey in the late summer or fall of 51. 
During that same period, remember, who did Paul leave back in Ephesus? Who did Paul leave behind in Ephesus? Said it two seconds ago. Aquila and Priscilla, very good. So he left Aquila and Priscilla back in his Christian, recently immigrated Corinthian believers, believing friends, Aquila and Priscilla, back in Ephesus. Even though Paul was in Ephesus the first time for a short period of time, he apparently had made quite the impression on the Jewish community there in Ephesus and probably led several to faith in Jesus as the Messiah because Luke tells us in Acts 18 that they wanted him to stay longer. Even though Paul couldn't, he left Aquila and Priscilla there, most likely to teach and ground those new believers in Ephesus. While Paul was making his way back to Antioch to complete his second missionary journey, Luke cuts back to Aquila and Priscilla in Ephesus. It's, it's like in a movie when it, when it cuts back to somebody being somewhere else. This event is very important to the first letter Paul writes to the Corinthians. You might have thought I went down a, 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 an irrelevant rabbit, rabbit travel. You'll see how this is extremely important to 1 Corinthians. Acts 18 describes for us a powerfully eloquent Christian man named Apollos arriving in Ephesus at the same time that Aquila and Priscilla were there. He was accurate about the messianic portions of the Old Testament all the way up to his understanding of baptism, but he was boldly proclaiming, boldly speaking out for the gospel. Aquila and Priscilla, seeing the great potential of this man for the spreading of the gospel, quietly, personally, and gently took him aside one day and corrected his understanding of baptism and its significant connection to Jesus. Following that teaching experience, which also shows us the humility and teachability of Apollos, we read in Acts 18, 27 through 28, that Apollos had been thinking about going to Achaia. Now remember what city is in Achaia. What city is in Achaia? Corinth. And the brothers and sisters in Ephesus encouraged him to go. They wrote to the believers in Achaia, asking them to welcome him. When he arrived there, he proved to be a great benefit to those who by God's grace had believed. He refuted the Jews with powerful arguments and public debate. Using the scriptures, he explained to them that Jesus was the Messiah. Like I said, this is extremely important to our discussion of even the very first chapter of 1 Corinthians. Paul stayed and ministered in Corinth for how long again? 18 months, a year and a half. That's a pretty long time. And that's a pretty long time to develop deep relationships based on faith in Jesus. Now, who else now has gone to Corinth and has been ministering there and winning more souls into God's kingdom, adding to the Corinthian church? Who now is there ministering? Apollos, keep that situation deeply ingrained in your mind because Paul is going to address a cause for disunity in the Corinthian church right away in his first letter to them based on this experience. Now, let's go back to Paul. Paul started his third missionary journey probably pretty soon after his return to Antioch after his second missionary journey. Thus, Paul probably left Antioch for the last recorded time in the spring of 52, once again made his way through the Galatian cities. This is the green line now. Made his way through the Galatian cities, then stopped in Ephesus. 
Paul ended up staying and ministering in Ephesus for about two and a half years. While he was in Ephesus, Paul wrote a letter to the church in Corinth, either in response to a previous one they had sent to him or because of a report brought to him. Either way, that first letter is referenced in 1 Corinthians 5.9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter, this is a previous letter, not to associate with immoral people. We'll cover this more exclusively when we get to that verse, but for now, I don't want anyone walking out of here with an inaccurate understanding of this verse. Paul goes on to clarify that it doesn't mean not to associate with an immoral person who isn't a believer, for then believers wouldn't be able to realistically live in the real world, would they? He's specifically addressing a situation in the Corinthian church, perhaps an issue of church discipline that the church didn't heed or understand. Biblical scholars believe that this first letter that Paul is referencing here was ignored or misunderstood by the Corinthian church and ultimately lost to time. There's no evidence of existence of that letter other than Paul's reference to it here. Because of that, while it contained good instruction, it was not breathed out by the Holy Spirit and therefore not preserved by God to be included in the New Testament portion of his word. Like I said before, this first letter was probably written by Paul to the Corinthian church early on in his extended two and a half year stay in Ephesus. Following the sending of that now lost first letter, at another point during his time in Ephesus, some from a household of a believing woman named Chloe, and also from the Corinthian church, brought Paul some disturbing news regarding disunity in that church. Sometime after that, Paul was again visited by an official delegation from the Corinthian church, referenced at the very end of 1 Corinthians, who brought with them a letter from the Corinthian church with questions they wanted answers to. In addition, this delegation themselves also probably brought up, according to one biblical scholar, more issues that were dividing the church. So we can see that there was quite a bit that needed addressing by Paul in 1 Corinthians, technically his second letter to them. As one biblical scholar pointed out, according to 1 Corinthians 16, we read, This time I don't want to make just a short visit and then go right on. I want to come and stay a while, if the Lord will let me. In the meantime, I will be staying here at Ephesus until the festival of Pentecost. Those who are a part of our Exodus series will hopefully remember that the Jewish feast of, pa uh, of Pentecost took place at what point of the year? I'm not going to make you remember that far back. Pentecost took place 50 days in connection with the term Penta after Passover and the subsequent Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's where the name comes from. Passover, following the lunar calendar, always took place 14 days after the first new moon of the spring equinox. So if Passover is always sometime in the spring, making Jewish Pentecost occur a month and a half after that, Jewish Pentecost is always in the late spring between mid-May and mid-June. That's what Paul is referring to here until the festival of Pentecost. If we line that reference up, with what we already can put together about Paul's ministry, 1 Corinthians was most likely written during Paul's last year in Ephesus, shortly before Pentecost. 
In other words, 1 Corinthians was most likely written in the early to mid-spring of 55, making it the next recorded New Testament letter we have following 2 Thessalonians written in 50 to 51 A.D. We've talked a lot about all that happened in the four to five years between Paul sending off his second letter to the Thessalonians and his writing of 1 Corinthians. So that's all the circumstances that led up to Paul writing this technically second letter to the Corinthian church, what we have as 1 Corinthians. Now let's talk about the city of Corinth itself. The port city of Corinth itself had a very interesting history. Remember, we're down here. Capital city of Achaia here. There are actually two phases of this city. One could refer to them as Old Corinth and New Corinth. Before 146 BC, Old Corinth was notorious for a place to pursue worldly and wicked pleasure. In fact, according to an ancient Greek writer, using the phrase to get a Corinthian girl meant that you were hiring a prostitute. Another writer named Aristophanes actually coined the, frame, the, the verb Corinthiastius to refer to sexual promiscuity. While he may have been exaggerating, another ancient Greek writer claimed that the temple of Aphrodite, located in Old Corinth, boasted 1,000 temple prostitutes. However, Old Corinth attempted to overthrow Roman rule, and in 146 BC, Rome annihilated the city, either killing or selling into slavery all of its inhabitants. Nothing was left of the city. The location of Corinth remained uninhabited for another hundred years until Julius Caesar founded Corinth, New Corinth, as a Roman colony for retired Roman army war veterans in 46 BC. In 27 BC, New Corinth became the political capital of the region of Achaia, from where the governor of Achaia, such as Galileo, would rule. This made for very interesting city dynamics. While New Corinth was certainly not Old Corinth in reputation for worldly aspirations, old habits die hard, don't they? As a port city, the pursuit of worldly pleasure was certainly at the forefront of everyone's minds. That will be something that Paul will need to address in this letter. Corinth was a landless society. What that meant was that the wealthy were more nouveau riche or new rich and built their wealth on sea-driven trade and goods. They didn't have land uh, that they inherited from people before them. All of these worldly temptations had found their way into the church, which Paul needed to address in his letters to them. See, all of this is going to feed into uh, our study of the actual letter that he writes to them. So we talked about the circumstances leading up to this letter, the city that the church was in to which the letter was going, and thirdly, I want to reference a change here. We've talked a lot about a lot of different things today, haven't we? I told you you had to put your thinking cap on today. It's very informational laden. Like I mentioned at the beginning of this message, all this will form the foundation from which we can accurately interpret and apply this letter of 1 Corinthians. But lastly, what I want to do, I want to go all the way back towards the beginning of this message and bring back a name for us to discuss. 
And this is what's going to lead us to our passage this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, And if you want to read along with me. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all, those, with all who in every place call on the name of, the, of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember that event in Corinth that led to Paul seeing it time to start wrapping things up there and moving on to Ephesus with Aquila and Priscilla where he would leave them and go on and finish the, his second missionary journey? Either the Corinthian Jewish community, upon being judiciously defeated by Governor Galileo in their charge against Paul, or anti-Semitic Gentiles, took a man named who? Sosthenes, right? They took a man named Sosthenes, who was the leader of the synagogue at the time, and viciously beat him up. Sosthenes was either the ringleader of the charge brought up against Paul, or he was a recent believer in Jesus, which everyone in the synagogue knew about. Or he was either a believer or the ringleader of the charge brought up against Paul and victimized by some Gentile onlookers. Either way, this experience was a violent, traumatic, and humiliating event in Sosthenes' life, wasn't it? Imagine you being that person, and all of a sudden, not only do you suffer a judicial defeat, but a group of people take you and start beating you in front of the governor, and he doesn't care about it. He just looks away and lets it continue right on in front of him. When we look at the beginning verses of 1 Corinthians, which we read, verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 1, whose name do we see come up again? Sosthenes, don't we? Biblical scholars differ on the actual identity of, of the Sosthenes mentioned in 1 Corinthians 1-2, if he's the same person or not, as in Acts 18. But wouldn't it be a beautiful testimony of what God can do in someone's life if it was the same person? I mean, we know from Acts 18 that there was a prominent member of the Corinthian synagogue who Luke is making a point of mentioning. He apparently sees the subsequent beating of a man named Sosthenes following Paul's release as so noteworthy that he needed to include it in his book. Why else would Luke feel the need to include Sosthenes' beating when it didn't necessarily need to be included in his book unless there was a personal connection between this Sosthenes and the early church? we can make the confident conclusion that the Sosthenes mentioned in 1 Corinthians 1-2 is Paul's scribe, the person writing this letter while Paul told him what he wanted written. Remember, we talked about last week, Paul had that diminishing eyesight problem known as ophthalmia because of that traumatic stoning that happened to him in Galatia. So he needed a scribe, someone that he would dictate the letter to who would do the actual writing down. If the scribe, Sosthenes, was with Paul in Ephesus at the time of Paul write, wanting to write 1 Corinthians, he would have been known well enough to the Corinthian church that Paul didn't 
need to give any more of an introduction and connection with him. It seems as if the Corinthian church, as we read here in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 1, already knew who Sosthenes was. All Paul says is, to the, uh, uh, Paul is as an apostle of Jesus by the will of God. I'm sorry, we're talking about verse 1. And Sosthenes, our brother, that's all he introduces him as. If he wasn't already known to the Corinthian church, Paul would have had to continue with describing who this guy was. But he, he just leaves it as Sosthenes, our brother. This implies that Sosthenes, the scribe in 1 Corinthians 1.1, and Sosthenes, the Corinthian synagogue leader in Acts 18, are one and the same. Isn't that a beautiful testimony and a perfect illustration of what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 3, that we just read? Here was this Jewish synagogue leader who was either a recent believer in Jesus or wasn't a believer at the time and was the ringleader of the anti-Christian charge against Paul. Following Galileo's dismissal of Paul's charge, Sosthenes is beaten to a pulp and we have no idea what happens to him after that. What very, what very well may have happened was that if Sosthenes wasn't a believer at that point, God used that experience to lead him to faith in Jesus. Following his commitment to Jesus, Sosthenes may have either quit being the synagogue leader or was forced out by the Jewish community. Perhaps having seen the courage of God in Paul during the trial before Galileo, Sosthenes spent some time asking around where Paul had gone off to, finally finding him in Ephesus and becoming his personal scribe for a period of time. In that way, Sosthenes, very much like all of us, had a personal experience of God's grace that Paul opens this letter to the Corinthians with. As Paul points out in verse 2, the believers in Corinth and us today have been sanctified or set apart for spiritual transformation only by the justifying sacrifice and life-giving power of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Just like Sosthenes and just like the believers in Corinth and believers everywhere, as Paul notes in verse 2, God found us while we were still in rebellion against him. We are being transformed into holiness, not because of anything inherently found in us, but only because of his calling, as Paul says next in verse 2. He called us by his spirit. He saved us by his son. And he is transforming us by his spirit. That grace of God and nothing else is the only basis for the peace of God, both of which Paul referred to in verse 3. It truly is the perfect greeting because it is our only foundation. It's the only thing we have to stand on. If everything in this world was ripped away from us, and this was all that we had, it would still be okay because it's all that we need. It doesn't matter if Paul's original audience lived 2,000 years ago. Nothing's changed in humanity. Nothing's changed. Our foundation has nothing to do with this world or what this world has to offer. It is only based on the grace of God. 
Each of our stories of God finding us and changing us is a personal expression of the power of this grace and a personal expression of what we find in the first few verses of 1 Corinthians 1. So as we continue to explore 1 Corinthians, we will see how this grace is supposed to change us and what real connections it has to everyday life in our lifelong transformation. No church is perfect. We are all still in the process of transformation. And we will see what God further needs to transform within each of us as he continues to spiritually transform and grow our church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opening verses of this letter to the church in Corinth. We thank you for what it declares to us, that your grace and your peace is the only foundation that we have in this world. If everything else was ripped away from us, it'd still be okay, because we would still have your grace and peace. Lord, I pray that as we continue to work our way through 1 Corinthians, you would keep us humble, and you would keep our, our minds open to see what more you're changing in our hearts and what more can be changed by your Spirit as we continue to grow, each of us personally, and us as a whole church. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me as we transition our hearts into our time of coming before the Lord's